remember what it was like to bring home your firstborn child from the hospital? Um, I, I remember this very, very clearly. I remember they said, hey, today you guys get to go home. And I had this thought, oh, we got to take her home. <laughs> like, what, what do we do now? When she's crying, we can't call for a nurse or something like that. Um, when we read the scriptures, we read this dramatic uh, birth experience of Jesus and then it is eerily silent after the Magi visits and the shepherds show up and the angels are appearing and giving all these uh, words of direction. It's just quiet. And I got to think that Mary and Joseph had this moment in the barn when everyone's gone. They go, what do we do with it now? <laughs> like, what, what do we do? Um, and that's kind of where we are every year on the Sunday after Christmas. We sit there and go, all right, what do we do now? Like, what, what, what's, what's going to happen with this? And so here for the next couple of weeks, as you saw in this video, um, we're going to be coming into this space where we look at what the scriptures say about kind of putting away the old and, and ushering in the new and what that actually looks like. Now, if you're anything like me, you hear that and you go, oh, I've heard this thing so many times. How can you possibly uh, expect me to engage in something like that. And so I, I was praying about that as we were putting this together and as w what we're going to get to hear next week as well. And just say, God, give us fresh eyes on this. Give, a, give us a way to hear this in a way that, that we haven't before. And, and I'm hoping that that's what happens, um, especially today as we, we focus on this idea of what it is uh, to deal with the old um, and what the scriptures actually have to say about this. One of my favorite books that I have on my bookshelf is a book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And if you haven't read it, I really encourage you to go read this. And it's uh, Lewis uh, giving us an allegory. Um, and in this, the main character is just known as the narrator. You never get a name. It's just a narrator. And he gets on a bus, and he thinks he's going to go some, to some next stop in England. And what it is is an allegory uh, for heaven and hell. Because his trip, he gets to experience all of these different kinds of creatures, some heavenly creatures, some hellish creatures. And he's trying to put this together and see how God is working right now and why it's so important that we're paying attention to this. Well, in The Great Divorce, uh, toward the end, he runs into a character who, who's just described as a young man or a young ghost. And uh, this character he's watching is having this conversation with a red lizard that is sitting on his shoulder. And this red lizard is sitting there and he's mocking this young man. And he's lying to him constantly, pointing out different things, saying, hey, this is what's going on here. Hey, this is what's going on here. But the biggest problem with this young lizard is that, uh, or this lizard on this young man's shoulder is that he doesn't shut up. He keeps talking constantly. And he's sitting right here, just in his ear. He's got an audience of one, just whispering and, and pointing things out and just keeps going and going and going to a point where this ghost, this, this young man, is annoyed. And it's, he's visibly annoyed, and he's like, I, I just need to get rid of this. What, why won't you shut up? Stop talking to me. All these things like this. Well, the next thing that the narrator discusses is that this, this kind of otherworldly body shows up. The, the, this body is described as, as human, but larger than a man, with a tremendous heat radiating from him. And a little bit later on in, the, in this portion of the story, he's just called Angel. And this angel shows up to this ghost, and he says, hey, do you want me to help you get rid of this lizard? To which the young man says, yes, help me get rid of this lizard. He says, okay. And, and he begins to glow and, and the heat gets turned up. And he says, I've got to kill it. I've got to kill this lizard. Well, the young man begins to recognize these implications. And he says, you know, 
Maybe you don't have to kill it. Maybe you don't have to get rid of it entirely. Can't we just do this maybe at another time? An angel responds and says, and this is the moment of all moments. Either you want the red lizard to live or you don't. Well, the red lizard seizes the man's hesitation and he mocks and he pleads at the same time and he begins whispering again into his ear. He says, be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'll, be, you'll only be a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it's not natural for us. I know there are no real pleasures, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? I'll be so good. I admit I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You see this red lizard for, for Lewis, it represents the indwelling uh, sins, revolting from lies and compromise that we have allowed ourselves to believe in. Again, it's allegory, right? We're supposed to see ourselves with this red lizard on our shoulder. And these compromise and lies are the very things that allow these red lizards to continue on living, to continue on whispering, and to continue on lying to us and enables us to continue to believe in the lies that the red lizard is saying. And it's almost innocent. I don't want to take this church thing too far. You don't need to take this angel too far. Didn't God forgive me after all? You know, I'm fine. You know, it's just this one time. Just this one time, I won't let it go too far. It's just this once. And all attached all these things are attached to these greater lies that we believe. It's almost innocent. And these greater lies come from this bigger, these bigger lies that we believe ultimately about God. And if we're honest, we believe about ourselves. And if we're even more honest, we believe about others. And because we have believed in these lies, we allow these red lizards to keep whispering these things to us over and over and over. And it seems innocent at first. But man, they stack up pretty quickly. They stack up pretty quickly, and it invades our thinking. So we begin to think wrong, but we think we're thinking truth. And it affects our emotions. Some of us even walk into places like this and go, I don't even feel God anymore. I don't even feel him anymore. And it ultimately impacts our behavior and our actions and the style in which we live our lives. And sometimes we get to the point and go, man, our life doesn't even recognize that God is the Lord of us. And Paul addresses those very red lizards in a passage in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to be in that most of the time today. If you have your Bibles with you, you might want to even put your thumb in Isaiah chapter 5 because we're going to go back and look at some things going on with that. But in, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is telling us exactly what it would look like and what it would mean to actually kill these red lizards, these lies, these compromises that we have made in our own lives. And so we look at, at Ephesians 4. We're going to start in verse 17. And this is what Paul tells us just to start out in this verse. This is what he's, he's telling us in, in regards to these things. Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. I'm going to pause right there. In our English versions of this, in our English translations of this, it does not emphasize the seriousness of Paul's language right here. 
Paul's insistence here that Christians do not live like everyone else. Now I say this, now I testify, or now I insist. These are incredibly strong words that Paul puts onto paper. It's a way of him saying, I say this in such a way that it is going to cost me something to say it to you, to bring this to you. And in these words, in this one line, we get to establish the work of Paul as pastor. And Paul is laying down part of himself in order to convey this message. Don't succumb to these things that are in the world around you. You know, oftentimes we here on staff, we, we get to ask questions very similar to this um, and discuss these things. We had one post to us not too long ago just asking, what, what would you, what, if there was one message that you could like physically place into the church, into the people you get to worship with, what would it be? And we we're just going around just answering this. Like if I could tell you something where I do, it, doesn't, it doesn't require any convincing, it just means I, we could just instill this into you, what, what is it that you would say? And it's, it highlights this kind of strong words that Paul uses right here, that in order to convince you, it really does, as a pastor, cost us something to bring that to you. It costs, us, costs the, the pastor Paul something to say this to the Ephesians. And it ought to be for us as the readers of this, or for us as the listeners of this, go, okay, well, Paul must think this is incredibly important for us to pay attention to. And he's saying, pay attention to these patterns around you. What are patterns in your life? I mean, do some honest assessment. What are some patterns in your life? And then when you look at this, ask this question, is there distinguishing patterns in your life that separate you from the world that's around you? That's a really hard question. It is incredibly difficult to do this, not because some of those things aren't obvious. It's hard because... Sometimes we have to admit that we have looked like the world around us. I have a friend who talked to me recently, just told me, I'm not looking forward to the holidays because I know I'm going to have to be with my, my family. I'm going to go see some people I, I don't normally get to see because I don't live in that town. And he was talking to me. He said, his, his phrase to me was, my family makes me angry. Like, we'll start really, really nice. We'll start very, very cordial. But then the more we talk, my family makes me angry. And I was sitting there and visiting with him and, and, and kind of walking him through some of these things and got to help him go, you know, no one really makes you anything. Like that anger exists in you from something. Like it, it's right there. Like there's something you haven't recognized or dealt with and it comes out in the right environments or it comes out in, in the places that, that, that kind of shakes that up for you. And I got to ask him this question, man, what is it that you're believing like when, you, when that anger starts spilling out of your mouth or spilling out of your thoughts or spilling out of your emotions, what is it that you have believed in that moment about God, about yourself, about those that are around you? And are they lies? Are they a result of a bunch of compromises that you have made to get to that point? What is it that you're believing? And then take a moment, step back and go, what's the truth that counters that? What's the truth that's, that's the actual reality of that? What is it that God actually revealed to you that you're not paying attention to? Is it possible you've succumbed to error in your thinking about God and about yourself and about others? 
Because as Paul talks about right here, when we, when we continue to participate in those patterns, when we continue to, to, to participate in the world around us in those ways, the, the end result of that is always a lack of fulfillment. It's always an empty promise. He says Gentiles are walking in futility. He, he says that they think that what they're doing is going to bring this ultimate satisfaction to their lives and that it's going to bring fulfillment in the way that they're doing these things. What is almost innocent is in fact very deadly to the, encounters the very blessing that God intends for us. See, futility is allowing this old part of us, this very thing that we're saved from, to prevail in the living of the lies. Look what he says in the very next verse. He says, they are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Paul's describing the very red lizards that live on our shoulders that are whispering these things to us, the very things that we have bought into all too often. He says they're darkened in their understanding, and it results in their ignorant thinking. See, these are results from the lies that we believe. They may seem insignificant at first, but this account builds up very, very quickly. They stack up very, very quickly. And this isn't the first time the people of God have had to encounter this. Um, the, the very thing that Israel and Judah found themselves in trouble with in the Old Testament was the fact that they succumbed to lies, and it was just a little bit at first, and a little bit, and then a little bit, and then a little bit, and pretty soon it was overwhelming, and it overtook them. And we get to see this played out in Isaiah chapter 5. If you look at Isaiah chapter 5, the, the whole chapter is, is really quite a bizarre thing. It starts out with, in the first seven verses, um, Isaiah actually writes an anthem, um, and it's very similar to like uh, something that we might sing about America. Um, kind of an American anthem or America the Beautiful or something like that where we kind of take some cheesy things and we put it together, we get this kind of feeling that, that comes together. And that's what Isaiah does at the beginning of this, he, uh, this chapter. He writes about uh, Judah being this vineyard that God has planted and, and singing about a vineyard and calling ourselves a vineyard is kind of a weird thing. Um, but, but, God, but God's trying to do something really, really cool, very, very valuable in, in his people. That's exactly what this anthem is getting at. But in verse 2 of Isaiah, uh, of Isaiah chapter 5, he says something kind of funny. He says that he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. But he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but I went to go look up what it means to be a wild grape. And when you look at these words used anywhere else outside of Scripture, it's not translated as wild, um, or some of your translations will say bitter. It's actually translated as stink or rotted. And so if we kind of apply that, he's saying, you know, what God intended to be this valuable fruit has turned into stink fruit. And so what does this stink fruit look like? And the whole rest of the chapter, starting in verse 8, Isaiah goes through these uh, what's called woes. He talks about all these woes when we succumb to being this stink fruit. And we're going to look at one of those. We'll look at one of those in Isaiah chapter 5 and verses 18 and 19. This is what he says. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let him come, 
that we may know it. It's kind of an interesting thing pointing out for Isaiah to these falsehoods, these lies that the people of God have succumbed to and the results that happen. I really like the way that the NLT translates this. I think it helps us to understand what, what Isaiah is getting at. This is what the NLT says. What sorrow for those who drag their sins behind them with ropes made of lies, who drag wickedness behind them like a cart. They even mock God and say, hurry up and do something. We want to see what you can do. Let the Holy One of Israel carry out his plan, for we want to know what it is. And do you see what's going on right here? Like, can you, can you kind of get the tone of what Isaiah's getting at? He's saying the people of God have believed in lies, and they're connected now to the very core of who they are. And then verse 19 is the mockery that comes from the results of those lies. And if you read this right, like if you read this in a certain way, it kind of sounds like they're drunk as they're reading this. It kind of sounds like they're, hurry up and do something. We want to see what you can do. Let the Holy One of Israel, let the Holy One of Israel carry out this whatever plan he's got. Look at, it, look at around us. Look at this great plan he has. See what lies do when we believe in them? They result in cynicism that mocks the greater plans of God and those that teach them. And it is fading into lies that we believe even if we don't recognize that we've believed in them. And notice the progression there for Isaiah in his woe. He starts out with cords. He says these, these, these falsehoods are these cords that, that the people got are attached to. And it's this progression from cords, which are burdensome, but they're not undefeatable. You can break these cords. But they hang around so long, and they dwell long enough to become cart ropes. Now, these cart ropes, these are that which is designed to bear a weight that cannot break under natural circumstances. Like, they become so strong. And when we've believed in lies long enough, we, we, we can get to a place where we believe that that's who we actually are. And we can't naturally break those ropes. And then in that text, when sin and wickedness are used together like this, it points to an interstate that's connected to specific instances. And in this case, to specific falsehoods, to specific lies, to specific compromises that we have made along the way. So what lies are you believing? You need to keep your faith to yourself. This is some of the things that our staff said when I asked them this. Um, what lies do you see Christian, uh, Christian people believe? Some of them said, you need to keep your faith to yourself. It's just a church thing. It doesn't need to invade every aspect of your life. You know, what you believe is actually pretty archaic, and it's only a crutch. And this Christianity, really, it's, it's for kids because we want to teach them good morals. It has no place in, in, in the real world. And being a good person is what gets you into heaven. What lies are you believing about yourself? And for some of us, I just can't get anything right. Some of us are believing the lie that no one cares. Some of us are believing the lie that I don't even matter. Some of us are believing this lie that all I got to do is try harder. And if I do things right, or if I try harder, if I give better effort, I'm going to feel happier. My mind's going to be right. I'm going to feel something again. It's a vicious cycle that's predicated on one big giant lie that it's all up to you and me. No wonder Paul, going back to our, our passage in Ephesians chapter 4, no wonder if Paul says what he says in verse 19 when he says this, 
They've become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, to greedy practices of every kind of impurity. And he says, our hearts are hardened. The stubborn and resistant to the things that belong to God. That we can mock them. That there have been opportunities to change and they didn't change. There were repeated choices that were not of God and they didn't make them. They may have had, uh, those things may have seemed innocent at first, but they have rubbed against the heart in such a way that it's calloused. And in that callousness of the heart, the sclerosis of the heart, there is no spiritual blood going to the brain. The allowance of the seemingly innocent things darken our understanding. Deception of compromises and lies and sin, the consequences, man, this is where it's, it's so deceiving. They rarely happen right away. Most of the time, they happen at a time far removed from those actual events. That's what makes them so alluring. That's what makes it so unavoidable sometimes. Lies we believe are alluring. They trap us and prevent us from enjoying true freedom. And that true freedom happens only when we exchange the lies for the truth. In Lewis's story, that angel comes to him and says, the only way to rid yourself of this lizard is to allow me to kill it. And so he walks up and he actually chokes the lizard to death. And he, and he heats and warms this lizard to death. But then something miraculous happened. This lizard turns from a lizard into this grand white stallion. And this ghost is able to get on this stallion and ride it. Isn't it time for us to stop giving the red lizards a lie? And for us to start riding in on the truth? Isn't it time for us to recognize that? Man, what are these lies? And then ask what the truth is. This is exactly what Paul does with the Ephesians. He goes on in verses 20 and 21. He says, but that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught him, as the truth is in Jesus. Man, that's where it is. This is where we find truth is in Jesus. This is where we find the truth about God. This is where we find the truth about ourselves. This is where we find the truth about others, where we get to experience our acceptance, where we get to experience real love, and where we get to experience our value and our worth, and where we get to experience the thing that bring us security in the blessings of life. And we ride the horses of truth by paying attention to the truth that is in Jesus. And this is how it happens, he says, verses 22 and 23. He's, he tells us, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Man, that's it. That's it. We put off the new self, or the old self, so that we are able to acquire the new self. We put it off. And this, this thing is more than just changing habits and patterns. But lies must be put to death. Compromise must be put to death. We recognize how those things have identified us, but we realize how Christ sees us. This word old um, is such a weird word in the original Greek language. It's the word paleos. It's where we get our word paleontology, if that helps you understand what, what we're looking at. It's this look at old things. It's the study of old things. But it means more than just old. It means obsoleted. It means that which is corrupted, that which no longer has life unless you put life into it. If you look at what Paul says about the old self in here, he actually presents, a, presents it to us in the present tense. He describes the old self being corrupt now, ongoing. 
And that's such a weird thing. How can the old be present? And I think the only way that the old can be present, the only way that these lies can continue to have life is when we breathe life into it. When we continue to feed them and continue to believe in and on them. But it's in Christ we find victory. It's in Christ where we get to believe on truth, where he renews the mind, and all that which affects our emotions and our behavior. What do you believe? What do you believe? Brian Chappell relates a story from July 30th, 1945. This is when the USS Indianapolis battle cruiser was returning from a mission, delivering resources to allied forces in the, in the Pacific when it was struck by a Japanese torpedo, sinking the ship in mere minutes. In fact, after 12 minutes, 300 of the 1,200 crew died. 900 went into the water and awaited rescue. They waited four days and five nights just waiting in the water. Four days and five nights without food, without water, frying in the blazing 110-degree sun, and freezing in the cool of the night. And of the 900 that went into the water, only 316 were able to survive the elements and the sharks. One of those survivors, his name is Edgar Harrell, wrote about this. He actually just died earlier this year, but he, re he recorded his own experience, and this is what he said. He said, there was nothing I could do, nothing I could do but give advice, bury the dead at sea and save the life jackets and try to keep the men from drinking the water. When the hot sun came out and we were in the crystal clear ocean, we were so thirsty. You couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men they shouldn't drink. The real young ones, you take away their hope, you take away their water and their food, they would drink the salt water and they would go fast. I can remember striking them who were drinking the salt water to try to stop them. They would get so dehydrated, then become maniacal. There were mass hallucinations. I was amazed at how everyone could see the same thing. One man would see something and then everyone would see it. Even I fought the hallucinations off and on. Something always, though, brought me back. This is what Harold says in his book, Out of the Depths. And for him, it was based on his experience and his faith in God who heard his cries from those very depths. And it's based on the 130th Psalm that says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. See, this old self is submerged in the depths. It's mired in lies and compromises and strapped in cords and cart ropes. Paul is trying to, trying to bring us back with words that are striking and can be hard to hear for us sometimes. Don't drink the waters of this world, he says. They seem clear, but it will not satisfy your thirst. They taste good, but trust me, it's poison. It hardens your heart, darkens your minds. You will thirst for more, but it will ultimately corrode who you are. You may not know it at first, but you will get stuck in the depths. You know, there's only one who can rescue us from the depths. The only one that can rescue us from our deception. If you're ready to cry out for the Lord to be attentive to your pleas for help and for mercy, man, today I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to go to one of these decision points. we got people who are ready to pray and lead you through that. And if you're honestly assessing your life right now and tired of constantly doing the same thing over and over but not seeing the results that you think you need to see. Or maybe it's time for you to put to death those red lizards. And those at the decision point are ready to lead you in that as well. 
Would you stand as we sing this song? If you've got a decision to make or want help with those things, go make your way to those spots and there will be people there to help you.